bit briefer than they usually would be, just simply because the passage that we are in is is rather short, and, and as you as you may have already noticed, or if you as you read through with me, you'll see that there's not a whole lot of new information, and yet there is something very important that deserves its our attention, and really not it's not a passage that we would want to gloss over and just used to connect to the next. In the third of Matthew's healing stories, if you've been counting them here since we began in chapter 8, we read of Jesus' encounter with another group of people. Already, Matthew has written of the leper in verses 1-4 through who displayed great faith in God's ability, or specifically in Jesus' ability, to heal. And he displayed great dependence or submission on his willingness to heal. If you if you will heal me, you can heal me. That's that was his that was his statement. Although he was a physical outcast because of his leprosy, we read that he found perfect and complete healing in Jesus's touch. Next, we learned last Sunday we we, we learned about a centurion who, though ethnically separated from God's people, displayed greater faith than any one of them did. And as Jesus finished the state, uh, finished the passage there in the little, uh, the little uh, story, uh, he he believed it was possible, and the centurion's servant was healed by Jesus's words without ever being near him. And again, as I've said every time we've we've gone through these things, that these stories are are given to us specifically this way. Matthew gives them to us this way to teach us the authority that Jesus possesses both in word and in deed. Not only does he speak and teach with the authority of God, he exercises his authority over uncleanness, disease. We'll see other things as he goes on. If we, last Sunday, we read uh, the parallel passage from Luke to help us to understand the centurion's servant. I'm not going to uh, have you do that this morning, but I will tell you uh, that you can read a, uh, the, the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke uh, Mark chapter 1, and I believe Luke chapter 4 will help us to uh, just get a few extra details here and there. And they, and if you pay attention to how the three evangelists give their gospel, they do it in a different order many times. And so that's why I say that Matthew very particularly places these stories as he did so that he can get a message across. And so we want to pay attention to that. One of the reasons that I share with you these parallel accounts is to help you to understand what's common about them, but also what is unique to those stories. Because if Matthew includes it, but Mark and Luke do not include it, that gives us an indication that that might be what Matthew is trying to get across. If they all include it, then you know we know that that's foundational to the story. And if he excludes something that the other two or one of the others included... Then we say, okay, that's, that happened. We're not saying that they're contradicting each other. We're just saying that Matthew's not paying attention to that side of the story. It'd be as if, uh, we all went to the same party and then we began to tell someone who was not there about that party. You might tell it a little differently. If you're a woman, you'll probably give all of the details that led up to the party, all of the things that happened at the party, and then how you felt when you went home from the party. If you're a guy, you just simply said, it was fine. And we move on. That's, 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 but we went to the same party and neither one is wrong. It's just that 
we tell it a little differently. And so how, and, and, and how the story is told gives us an idea of that person's uh, impression of it and what, what was important to that person and how it relates to them. So we will pay attention to Matthew. I will make a couple of, of, of uh, con- uh, comments ba- based on Mark or Luke, and you'll see those as we go through. But uh, we, there's a lot of, of introduction, if you will, before we get to where I really want uh, us to, to land. This third story in, in uh, Matthew chapter 8 is so short that we can read right through it and miss the significance of its inclusion in the Gospel. So we need to be very careful, slow down as we read stories like this, uh, and pay attention, else we will miss uh, very, very important truths and, and very special truths. These, this passage here, 14-17, through 17, is a couple of two-verse stories that have a lot of similarities to the first two stories that we read, which is why I think if we're not careful, we could just kind of gloss over it because it's just yet another healing. Just another person got some more healing and, 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 and couldn't it get all, you know, couldn't we get the, the truth from one healing miracle? And yet, why so many? Uh, that's why we want to pay attention to these. Because not only do they have some similarities, and actually, if you're looking at the bulletin there uh, for tonight, one of the questions is, uh, and I don't think we'll, we'll spend a lot of time on it tonight, but it's for you, kind of extra credit if you want, to, to try to find some similarities, parallels between these three stories because those will those will, will pull out some application for us and, and, and help us to understand the passage a little bit better. But th- though they have similarities in the story, they have their own unique and special meaning that, that we want to make sure we pay attention. So very, really, it'll be very quickly we will get through the through the story and, and understand what happened, and then we will spend our remaining time trying to understand how that how that applies and what, what the purpose of it is. So uh, if you if we read through Mark, we would have read that Jesus had prior to this passage to verse number fourteen, sometime in Capernaum, he had been speaking in the synagogue at Capernaum, and he made his way to Peter's house. It's in Mark chapter one. Now Matthew tells us that as he gets to the house here, he finds Peter's mother-in-law who is very sick. Uh, she has a fever and, and uh, she is uh, she is lying down. And I don't. Think. I read a few things uh, this week that, that kind of reminded me that in that day and time, uh, lying down because you don't feel good was a bigger deal than today where we can kind of put our lives on hold, lie down for a minute, you get sick days, you don't even have to go into work and uh, you know if you, if you have a good job and they let you take off uh, because you don't feel good or you just need to take an hour nap. In those days, you, d- you worked while the sun was up. You didn't take days off like this. And so her being uh, laid up was a rather significant fever. So she didn't have a, uh, a you know, a, a 99.2 temperature or something like that. She, she was uh, in, in danger here. And as Jesus enters the house, he saw this woman in her terrible condition. And Matthew doesn't tell us this, but the, Mark and Luke tell us that the, the people in the house, the disciples that he had with him, uh, begged Jesus to do something about it. In the synagogue, he had uh, cast out a man with demons. In Matthew's uh, chronology here, uh, he's done some, some other healings. And so we know that the disciples uh, are aware of Jesus' power and authority. Certainly, if a Gentile a centurion knows, and if a leper who has not been a part of God's community uh, for some length of time is aware of who Jesus is, certainly the people who have been following him and hearing him teach and preach know that he's 
He's got a, a unique ability to uh, take away sickness. And so they appeal to him. And Jesus touches the woman and immediately heals her. And we read that it says there that the fever left her. And when it left her, she rose, she got up, and she began to serve. And that's really the whole story. Jesus comes to a house. There's a sick lady. He touches her hand. She gets up. She's better. And she begins to serve them. Uh, both Mark and Luke offer just a few extra details, but really this is, this is the story. And I, I read through this and I think, why, why is that there? What's, what's the point of this? Do I really want to spend an entire Sunday uh, trying to, di- to, to dissect a, a story that is, seems to be pretty cut and dry? But the fact that it is such a simple story will cause us, if we're careful readers, to wonder why it is there and what is what I'm not seeing uh, on the surface. And uh, some believe that there's some significance here in the fact that Jesus touched a woman, which was uncommon uh, in those days. It was uh, by tradition. It was just it was not a, a, a thing that you would do. Uh, women have been recognized by many as yet another people group that is marginalized. We had the lepers. We had Gentiles. We had women. Uh, and so in that day, uh, the, the, some see the significance there. Some would say that it's significant that he touched a woman who had a fever, that the fever was the significance of the passage. But I see this story as really a necessary setup to what we're about to read in the next two verses. So in beginning in verse number uh, 16, uh, then the story continues. And Matthew writes here that that, that evening, many sick and diseased and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus, and then the Bible says, and I love it, the Bible says Jesus healed them all. He healed them all. I'm going to read it for you again. Verse number 16, this is that evening, they brought to Him many who were oppressed by demons, and He cast out spirits of the Word and healed all who were sick. And by reading Mark and Luke's account, we learn that this was the evening after the Sabbath. That's why Jesus was in the synagogue. And if you and if you understand uh, the Old Testament and and even into the, the in beginning into the New Testament, the religious authorities had placed severe restrictions on the people for Sabbath days, and so there were restrictions on how far you could walk, how much stuff you could carry. Uh, no type of work should be done, and so it was. Uh, there's there's a this is probably why it happened later that night. So when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, it happened at the towards the end of Sabbath. And their their days began on the, in the evening time. And so now it's a new day. Sabbath is over. Now many people began to show up at the door looking for healing. And imagine the crowd that night. If you can kind of play this in a, as a movie in your head and think about how, the, the as, as Luke explained and Mark, I think both of them said that the whole town shows up at Peter's door. And they're all waiting to be healed. And, 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 and I imagine it going late into the night as Jesus confronts and encounters person after person who, is, who presents a variety of problems from fevers to demons to maybe leprosy to uh, maybe a withered hand or uh, lame legs or uh, could it be all of the things that we deal with today and maybe any, even other things. And the Bible says He healed them all. Healed them all. There's great power in the healing words of Christ. There's nothing too big or too severe for him to handle. Even in our day, when maybe you know the greatest uh, progress has ever been made in medical science, today doctors and surgeons still often find themselves helpless to to save someone. 
especially when a disease has uh, spread too far through a person's body. At some point, they begin to say, well, all we can do, modern medicine only allows us to make the person comfortable, maybe uh, try to make their, their, the end as quick and as painless as possible. But not so with Jesus. We never read a story of Jesus where He gets to someone who is too sick, who is too far gone, who is uh, too helpless. And Jesus says, and Jesus never comes to someone and says, man, if only I would have gotten here a few days sooner. If only the doctors would have diagnosed you before it got to this stage. Never happens with Jesus. We never see Jesus breaking a sweat. We never see Jesus consulting medical journals or wondering how in the world am I going to help this guy out. Most of the time, with just a word, He heals them. Sometimes with a gentle touch. He cleansed the unclean. He freed those under the power and control of demons. He restored health to those with whatever sickness or disease they had. And verse 7, really I think is the, is the, is the, 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 the climax to this story and to why really everything from verses 1 through, not verse 7, verse 17, why 1 through 16 tell us what they tell us because of verse number 7. Verse 7 says that it was written to show us that what Jesus did was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. We read it this morning, and, and I, I, I just I cheated and I said Isaiah. And I think many of you said Isaiah. And then you're like, where is the book of Isaiah? Isaiah. Uh, and, it's, and it comes from Isaiah 53. So I'd like for you to turn there, if you will. And I want to show you just a couple of the verses that come from Isaiah 53 that Matthew specifically is referencing here. I'll read, it, I'll read Matthew while you're turning there. Jesus... Um, or not Jesus, but Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So Isaiah chapter 53, probably many of you are, are very familiar with Isaiah 53. It's a messianic um, passage. It tells us a lot about it. We read it uh, last Sunday night during uh, communion and, and just reflecting on the the irony between it was our sins and yet He suffered and with His stripes, we are healed. And, 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 and it's all about we are guilty. He is innocent. We deserve it. Yet He got it. And, and it's just a beautiful passage. I'm only going to read uh, beginning in verse number 3 down to verse number 5. So if you want to follow along. And, and, and verse number 5 is the verse that Matthew is, is, is specifically referencing here. But in verse number 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And when we study the Scriptures surrounding Jesus' earthly ministry, we learn that many misunderstood the mission of Messiah. They anticipated Messiah. They knew Messiah was going to come. And they knew specific things about the Messiah and were kind of looking for those signs that Messiah would bring. And the Jews look forward to His coming, but I think as we, as we read, even as I read um, in my, my personal devotions this morning, uh, that many looked for the Messiah for the wrong reasons. 
They thought the Messiah would come as a conquering king and deliver them from oppression and captivity from heathen nations. When Jesus came on the scene for a time, many believed that He was the one that was going to rise up and deliver Israel from the grip of Rome. This is possibly why, as we've seen already, that Jesus instructed people, uh, we've seen it once, but all through uh, His ministry, He would regularly tell people, don't tell anybody what, what, what happened to you. I healed you, but don't tell anybody. And He was trying to keep it, keep it quiet. And this is possibly why, because people had the wrong idea of the Messiah. They were looking for a miracle worker rather than a spiritual Savior, a substitute. If you could say, people would get starstruck and really miss the purpose of what Jesus had done. On Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, uh, many people got their hopes up expecting uh, the long-awaited Messiah to finally make His move against Rome. And we, we hear that in their, in, their, in their shouting, Hosanna, save us now! Save us now. And you can hear the chant. And if they had, you know, if they would have had uh, billboards, that's what, that's what it would have been on them. And they're throwing the palm branches in the streets and laying their coats. And they're saying, here he is. He's finally come to save us now. Rome has got up. They better, you know, they better get ready because here it comes. Because they knew what the scriptures said. They knew that one of the signs of Messiah would be physical healing. Do you remember? I read it, I think, two weeks ago when John the Baptist was in prison and he was kind of doubting whether or not Jesus really was because he was in a low place spiritually and things weren't going his way. And so he sent people to Jesus and said, are you the one that should come? And Jesus didn't say yes or no. He said, go back and tell John what you've seen. The blind receive their sight and the, the deaf hear and the, the poor of the gospel preach them. He quotes a messianic prophecy and saying, I'm doing these things. These works speak for themselves. The Jews knew what the Messiah would do. And when Jesus began to do this, do these things, they were more than ready to accept him. They were more than ready to claim him as the Messiah King all the way up until he began to present himself in a different way, not as the king that was going to take over the world, but as the servant who would die as the sacrifice, the suffering servant, and they rejected Him and called for His crucifixion. This morning, I had read, I was reading in Matthew, I think Matthew 26, and when they released Barabbas. And in and, and Mark, there's a very interesting phrase that says that Mark was an insurrectionist. Mark was a, a rebel. He had, and he was a murderer. And, and he killed someone during this rebellion, during this uprising, and it, and it shows the contrary, uh, opinions, if you will, between what Messiah would do. I'm not saying that they thought that Barabbas was the Messiah, but because Jesus was so different than Barabbas, not just in that he had never killed anybody, but that Barabbas was all about freeing Israel from Rome, and Jesus wasn't there, and he even told Pilate, he goes, my kingdom's not of this world. Caesar doesn't have anything to worry about. I'm not trying to replace him on the throne. His my kingdom is not of this world. And, and, and when the people finally realized it, they, they rejected him. And they called for his crucifixion. Even today, people misunderstand the purpose of Jesus' power over physical and natural diseases. Many preachers and teachers today will rightly recognize the Messiah uh, or rightly recognize Jesus as one who can heal. He is the healing power of God. And, and they rightly recognize the connection that Matthew draws from physical healing to the Messiah King. But they wrongly teach that Christ 
that the Christ who brings spiritual salvation also intends to bring us physical health and healing to all who follow Him. It's this prosperity gospel that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Where it is very contrary to what the Scriptures actually teach. Uh, these people would say that it is God's will for Christians to be happy and healthy and, and everything just going good for you and you just need to give a little more, pray a little more, believe a little more, and God's got a wonderful life planned for you. I believe God has a wonderful life planned for us. But it might not be the same definition that I have, that, uh, that He has. And, and, and we, we, we find this all around us today. I want to talk about this idea between physical healing and spiritual healing and the difference and the significance between the two. Because physical healing, at least sometimes, is not a part of God's will for people. It may be that way for you. You might currently, and for many, many years, deal have been dealing with something that you really wish would go away. You really would like God to take this thing away that bothers you so much. And yet He doesn't. And if God's will is for His followers to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, then what does that say about you? What does it say about God? So that I don't believe that that's what, that's what God's will is for us. It doesn't take long uh, for us to read the Scriptures to find many pieces of evidence that, uh, that show us that God allows suffering to occur and to continue in the lives of His people. Let me just give you a few examples. We won't turn to any of them, but just, just to kind of think about it. We talked about this a little bit two Sunday nights ago. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. He prayed for three times. He said, God, take this away from me. I could do so much more for you if, you, if I didn't have this impediment. And God says, no. God, let him keep that. We see Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was wrongfully accused by Potiphar's wife. He was thrown into prison and spent many years as an innocent man being uh, suffering for crimes he did not commit. God didn't save him from that. The entire book of Job is about how God allowed Satan to test him. Satan killed his family, took away his fortune, robbed him of his health, and stripped away every good thing that Job had in life. We look at Job and think, wow. That guy lost everything. And the only people that stayed in Job's life were probably the people that we would say, God, why didn't you take them? I mean, Job's three friends, I would rather have you taken them and left three of my kids because these guys are horrible people. And we have the, the, the most of the 42 chapters of Job are this conversation between these, these four men and how they're saying, Job, God uh, must be judging you. That's why these things are happening to you. And yet we realize, no, God was proving Job. Not saying if Job would remain faithful, but proving to Satan that Job would remain faithful. God allowed these things to happen to him. Lazarus was allowed to die before Jesus showed up. In fact, the way the story tells us that Lazarus, uh, the news of Lazarus reached Jesus and then he waited. If Jesus was truly concerned about getting there before Lazarus died, either to heal him or to pay his final respects, Jesus would have dropped exactly everything he was doing and rushed to meet him, and yet he waited a couple more days. And he got there at just the right time. Now, in Mary and Martha's opinion, that was not the right time. That was about four days too late. But you can't resurrect somebody who ain't dead yet. 
And so that's, and that's what, and that's what Jesus allowed for Lazarus. And of course, the greatest example is Jesus himself of the innocent suffering greatly. Jesus was wrongly accused. He was tried and convicted, sentenced to die while a criminal was released with not one shred of evidence against him. Jesus hung on the cross and suffered the most humiliating and agonizing death that was known at the time. But not only did Jesus suffer at the hands of men, He submitted to the wrath of God. He drank the the bitter cup. And the Bible says that He who knew no sin became sin that we who believe in Him could become the righteousness of God. God allows people to suffer. God allows His people to suffer. And it's not always as a punishment. Yes, God heals. And God still does miracles. We're not casting any doubt on that. But God doesn't always remove the suffering from people's lives. By the definition of a miracle, it is neither common nor expected. So I want us to understand a few facts about physical healing, and then we're going to end up uh, in this realm, the other side of spiritual healing. Let me uh, share a few facts with you that you see there in your notes there. Because we are so concerned with removing the suffering from our lives. Uh, we do everything in our power as soon as we can, as fast as, as much as we can, to uh, re- take away the pain, to find healing whenever we hurt, right? You, you're sick, you take an aspirin. Or you, you take some, med- uh, some, you get a shot. Or uh, if, if something hurts, you, you, you go to the doctor and you want this. You don't want it around. Now, I know some of us will say, okay, well, I'll just, I'll, it'll go away on its own. But if we're convinced that it's not, we do what we can. We're not satisfied with, you know, my arm is turning black. You know, we, we do something about that. But you know, I got a headache. You might ignore it for a little while, but if that thing continues, you're going to do something about it because we don't like pain. And that's a natural thing. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not saying that it's wrong even that we pray that God takes away the pain from us. And we, and if we pray that God heals the suffering, whether it be ourselves or whether it be for other people, I'm not saying that's wrong at all. I do that myself. But what I am saying is that often God has a bigger picture in mind that we don't, we don't see. So number one, physical healing is temporary at best. Think about it. Everybody that Jesus healed in our stories and all throughout the New Testament eventually died anyway. Think about Lazarus. Lazarus was allowed to die so that Jesus could resurrect him, yet he died again. He's not still alive. He didn't get taken to heaven uh, like Enoch did or Elijah did. He died again. And uh, 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 Peter's mother-in-law, she recovered from her fever, but she's not alive today. She finally did succumb to death. The leper that Jesus cleansed in verses 1-4 through eventually died just like everybody else. That's because physical healing doesn't last forever. Number two, physical healing is secondary in scope. I have a feeling, I have this nagging feeling in the back of my head that that's not the right numbering that's in your notes there, but I will just keep going on. Physical healing is secondary in its scope. Now why would Jesus heal people who will eventually die anyway? Why bring Lazarus back from the grave if Jesus knew he was going to die again and make his sisters go through that? 
you know, the whole grieving process and the, and the, the, the seven stages of grief for all, all those things that they would go through and, and, and just, just the, the loss and the, and the, and the, and the denial and the, and the, and the, the, the anger and the, and the acceptance, all that. Finally, they're, they're dealing with this and then Jesus comes and reverses it all, but it wasn't forever. The physical healing lasted until the end of his life, but physical healing only lasts for a lifetime. Why would Jesus heal Lazarus if he was just going to let him die again? If physical healing is so great, how come it only lasts for a lifetime? Physical healing is secondary because it points to spiritual healing. That was Jesus' mission. He came as a physician to heal the sick, but not those sick with physical diseases. Although he did do that, that was not his primary mission. Jesus came to heal those sick with sin. You see, physical suffering is a result of sin. That's why we have the things that we have today. All of the aches and the pains of growing old, the, the, uh, the broken bones, the, the headaches, the stomach aches. Uh, think about it, in a perfect world, Adam could have eaten as much chocolate cake and ice cream as he wanted to with no regrets, with no consequences, no tummy ache, it would not have spoiled his dinner. It would not have kept him awake at night. He could eat whatever he wanted, and it wouldn't have bothered him. I'm convinced that chocolate cake and ice cream were in the Garden of Eden. It was on one of the trees. Um, but in Romans 5.12, we read that sin came into the world through one man. That's Adam. And death came because of sin. And Paul wrote, so death passed or spread to all men because all of sin. Death is the ultimate uh, disease, sickness, everything you know, leads to death, and death is, is, is here. Death is a part of our life because of sin. In Romans 6.23, we learn that the payment or the reward for sin is death. And that's what Christ came to save us from. He came to address the root of our suffering and bring spiritual healing, which to be healed. unlike the physical kind, and God does eternal. exactly that. And though Jesus' words sometimes brought temporary healing of the body, Jesus' wounds bring ultimate healing of the soul. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. So, how should we as Christians view suffering and sickness? It seems that for a three-year period on earth, give or take, and in a very small part of the world, every sick person was healed by the miracle-working power of Jesus. There was never a time when someone came to Jesus and He couldn't heal them. Now, there were times when He couldn't do miracles because of their unbelief, but we don't live in that time, do we? We can't travel to Jerusalem or to Capernaum or wherever and find Jesus and find the healing and ask Him to take away our sickness and disease. But our sufferings are just as real as what they suffered through in the Bible. So how do we handle them? Of course, the leper, he was right about Jesus. If Jesus wants to heal, Jesus can heal. He can put an immediate end to the painful issues that you and I experience in life. And as the centurion stated, just because Jesus is not physically here, that doesn't mean he's any less able to help. We believe Jesus can help. But as we've seen in the pages of Scripture, and often in our own lives, 
That's not what He always does, is it? So what are we as followers of Christ supposed to do? How do we respond to physical suffering? Well, first of all, we can pray. We can pray for healing. Just a couple of Sunday nights ago, we considered this question. This is uh, where some of the, the material, if it looks familiar, some of that I'm just going to share with you again. We shared several statements that are helpful for, uh, for us to remember when we pray for healing, when we pray for ourselves, or when we pray for other sick people. As we pray for God to help us and heal us and our loved ones, we need to remember, first of all, that God can heal. God can do something about it. He can heal the suffering. He can fix the problem. But we also need to recognize that God could have prevented it in the first place. Nothing has ever happened and is accidental with God. God doesn't say, oh man, I didn't see that one coming. God always sees and He's never caught off guard. And God knows what's going to happen in each of our lives. And He has the power and authority to prevent every bad event from ever coming into our lives. Just as He can take them away, He can fix them and prevent them. But as we pray, we have to also recognize that God might not fix our problem. He is always able, but He's not always willing. And although He told Paul that healing was not in His will in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, God did say that His grace was there. God said His grace was sufficient for Paul. Paul wanted healing from his problem and he prayed, but God said, my grace is enough. That meant that the suffering would continue. That the problem wouldn't go away. And that might be the case in our own lives. It might be that God is not willing to remove our problem. It might be His will for us to suffer with it for a little while longer or for the rest of our lives. And so we pray. And we ask God for healing, realizing that God can help, but God might not help. He might have different plans for us than we do. But even in our suffering, even after God says no to our requests, we do not give up hope. That's not the end. That's not the end. We don't say, oh, I guess there's nothing else I can do. There's something else. Paul wrote there in 2 Corinthians that he prayed, three times for God to remove the suffering, but God wouldn't. And when Paul finally realized that God had different plans for himself, he said that he wrote these words. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. for My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You catch that? Paul gladly boasted about his weaknesses. That word there means to glory or to rejoice. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, in his weakness. Why? Because although God wouldn't give him healing, He gave grace. And it was through his suffering that the power of Christ was displayed. In our suffering, while we pray, and even after we seem to get a different answer than what we hope for, we can rejoice. We can boast in our weaknesses, as Paul says. We can remember that God is always good. Joseph in Genesis realized that suffering that he had gone through had been intended for good. God didn't take it away because He had something better in mind. 
not just for him, but for his entire family and for a future nation. And we too must recognize that God might bring deliverance to us, but in an unexpected way. When we pray for help and for healing, we expect it to come on our terms, don't we? Before I say amen, God, I want to see this done. Or God, when I go to that doctor, I want to see progress. I want to see no signs of disease. I want to see healing. It's not always how God works. But God often helps us in ways that we would have never imagined. Sometimes what we call tragedy and loss might actually be God's ultimate deliverance. Physical suffering may actually be the avenue of God's healing. David Platt wrote that there is a day coming when death, mourning, crying, and pain will be no more. As we wait for that day, we don't run from suffering. We rejoice in suffering. Paul wrote to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, that they could rejoice in their suffering knowing that it would produce patient endurance through experience and unashamed hope. Later on, he wrote that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to our future glory. Whatever I'm dealing with now has no comparison to what awaits me. He also told the Corinthians, he says, our light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me give you the reference. I'd like for you to look it up sometime and, and, and reread it. 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our earthly suffering, he says, is light compared to the weight of glory to come. He says our earthly suffering is momentary when you consider it eternal, when you consider eternal glory. And that eternal weight of glory, he says, is beyond anything that we can compare it to here on earth. Writer Grant Osborne explained, when we are not healed physically, God is doing what is best for us. And His very refusal to heal us physically becomes the meaning, the means of healing us spiritually so that God's healing presence is always involved. When a Christian suffers or even dies of sickness and disease, we can either see it as loss or ultimate healing. We can pray for ourselves and for our friends and loved ones to be healed. And God does exactly that. Either He heals them to serve Him a little while longer on this earth, or He heals them to worship Him face to face in heaven. Let us always keep the eternal perspective in view. Yeah, let's pray for ourselves and for the others who suffer. But let's learn to leave them in the hands of the God who is good, who ultimately heals His suffering children, who took our illnesses and bore our diseases in Himself. And whether we find healing in this life or the next, let us rejoice in the One who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, who endured the, the chastisement that brought us peace. 
by whose wounds we are healed. Let's pray.